We may now turn to the portion of God's Word read, the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians, the first chapter, and we may read uh, from verse 23 just now. Philippians 1, verse 23. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And it is particularly those words that the apostle uh, writes here to the Philippians. I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart. Having a desire. That's what we want to focus our minds upon, this desire that the apostle has, having a desire. Now, every one of us have desires of one kind or another. We all know what it is to desire. Desires are very understandably secret things. They are hidden. Desires are internal until they are actually fulfilled or until they bring fruition. And the, the apostle here is speaking of a desire, a single desire. The desire that he had that was above every other desire. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. It's very obvious that the apostle was able to compare and he was able to contrast between the present and the future. And he is living in this world, he's serving the Lord, he's faithfully engaged in the great missionary work to which he has been appointed, and he has many spiritual, godly, holy desires. But there is this one desire above all the rest, a desire that he concentrates upon here, a desire to depart and leave this world and be with Christ, which is far better. Now, there are not many people that think that way. Most today, if you were to engage them in conversation, they think there's nothing better than this world if they're prospering, if they're doing well in this world, they're satisfied, and they don't really want to leave it. But the Apostle Paul contrasts this world with the world to come. And he thinks there's something far better, far, far better than anything this world has to offer. And he says, I have a desire to be a partaker of that which is far better. Now, he doesn't say how much better it is. It is Sufficient to say it's far better. Now that is the hope of every true believer, the hope of every child of God. 
no matter how well we get on in this world, and no matter we might say as we progress through life, well, things are far better for me now than they were ten years ago. Things are far better for me now when I'm grown up and when I've got a good job and a good income, far better than when I was a child or when my parents struggled to raise me. Things are far better. But for the child of God, they understand this world is not their eternal abode. And they have this hope There is something far better waiting for me. Something far better than any experience I've ever had. You think of how encouraged sometimes the Lord's people are when they feel a nearness to God and they think, well, that's far better than being in a backslidden state. And to be able to open up the Word of God and enjoy it and draw benefit from it, well, that is far better than the ignorance that I used to experience when I opened God's Word and it was meaningless. And in the experiences of the Lord's people, they're able to compare and contrast, and they know there are things that are better. But nothing can compare with what the Apostle is speaking about here. I desire that, which is far better. I desire the best. And why do I do that? Because God desires it too. God desires it for me. And this is what the apostle then is telling the Philippians. I am in a great street because I do have a desire, and it's a real desire. It is a genuine desire. And that's the desire that we all should have. And that's why we want to consider it together for a little this evening. The very first thing that we should note about it, it is a personal desire. The apostle doesn't think for a moment that everyone has this desire. In fact, he knows from his own experience there was a time when he didn't have it. But he presently has it. And this is his desire. It's a spiritual desire. It is a true desire, but it is very personal. The apostle isn't carried along with the crowds. He's not interested in what others are desiring. What he's able to say is this, this is my desire. And this is a very real desire to me. And it is a desire that I hope one day will be perfectly and fully fulfilled. Now, every one of us here this evening, as I've already said, from the youngest to the oldest, we've some degree of desire. And what kind of desires do we have? Sometimes we bring our desires with us to the house of God. And sometimes we find our minds wandering because the desire isn't strong enough uh, to inhibit the intrusion of other desires. 
And that is something, you see, that we ought to be concerned about. What is the strength of my desires? When the psalmist writes in Psalm 28, he is able to say before God, All that I do desire is still before thine eye, and of my heart the secret groans not hidden are from thee. All that I do desire. And you see, whether it's a good desire or a bad desire, whether it's the desire we ought to have or a desire that we are forbidden to have, one thing we do know is this. We cannot possibly hide our real desires from God. We cannot. We may sometimes feel, well, I wouldn't want anyone to know what I really desire. Children might think to themselves, I would not want my parents to know what I desire, and so on. But the one thing is certain, we cannot possibly hide our desires, our personal desires from God. And the very desires that are in our hearts at this very moment are known unto God. And the psalmist, or the apostle here, like the psalmist, he knows that his desire is before God. And so, (coughs) what does he say when he's writing to Timothy in his second epistle that he writes to Timothy in the fourth chapter there, he's conscious that he's nearing the end of his life's pilgrimage and he tells Timothy, (coughs) I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. What's he writing to the Philippians? I have a desire to depart. That desire, because it is a godly desire, because it is a spiritual desire, and it is a desire that is before the Lord, there comes the time when he's able to say, the time of my departure, I've been desiring it, I've been waiting for it, I've been looking for it, (coughs) I have been preparing for it, now it has come. You see, when the desire is a spiritual desire, and it is a desire that pleases God, he will fulfill it. And this is what the the apostle understands, and he's not ashamed then to tell these Philippians, this is my desire. Whatever you Philippians desire, whatever they desire anywhere else in the world, this is my desire. It belongs to me. But, because it is the personal desire of the apostle, it is secondly a new desire. We all know from the record of God's dealings with Saul of Tarsus, there was a time when he had no such desire whatever. He had no such desire. 
There wasn't even the faintest uh, particle of desire like this. It was foreign to him. What did he desire? He desired to persecute Christ. He desired to silence the apostles. He desired to hamper the progress of the gospel. He was so ignorant of Jesus Christ, he couldn't desire him. You remember in Acts chapter 9 when the Lord met with him. He's on his way to Damascus with letters from the Sanhedrin to arrest believers wherever he could find them. And when he was struck down and the voice spoke to him, he said, Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou? And when the response came back, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. What a revelation it was to him. Here he's writing now. I desire to be with Christ. I stood witnessing. I held the garments of those who stoned Stephen to death. And I was infuriated when he was saying that he saw the Savior, the Lord Jesus, standing At the right hand of the throne in glory, I was infuriated when I heard him even speak that way. I didn't want to hear the name of Jesus. I didn't want to know anything about him. I had no desire whatever to be with him. Here he's telling us something has happened. He is now a new creation In Christ Jesus. And desires that were foreign to him, they now exist. Oh, the power of God. The mighty power of God to put into the heart that which never previously existed. To change the will, to put desires there that only God can put there. And we might sometimes see those and we think, well, there's not the slightest desire for God in his heart or her heart. They have no desire for the things of God. They have no desire for the word of God. They have no desire for the people of God. You think of Saul of Tarsus. He had no desire for Christ. He had no desire for the church. He had no desire for the people of God. He hadn't got those kind of desires. His desire was to demonstrate to God how righteous he was. What a good law keeper he was. How diligent he was about his religion that was all external. But what a wonder. I have a desire. Where did it come from? How do I have it? God did it. That should be a tremendous encouragement. You might be here this evening and you might be praying for someone that you're concerned about. And you think to yourself, they are so hard-hearted. 
They are so worldly minded that they don't have any desire for the things of God. They don't have any desire for their soul's salvation. They don't have any desire for Christ. But look what happens here. Here's the great adversary of Christ in the church. And he says, I have a desire. It's a miracle. It is a mighty miracle wrought by God. It's a miraculous desire. I wasn't born with it. It never developed while I was sitting, learning uh, from uh, the great teacher of the time. Uh, I never learned these things. I never developed that desire then. This is a desire that is entirely wrought of God. In the uh, psalm that we were singing from, the Psalm 27, uh, there we have uh, what the psalmist says in verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. How do we know if we have the right desires? How do we personally know that we have a new nature with the right desires? Well, the psalmist says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. Show me what a man's seeking after. Show me what a young person is really seeking after. The effort they make, the zeal they have, the determination, and that will indicate clearly what their desire is. Do they desire the word of God? They'll be feeding in the Bible day by day. Do they desire the people of God? They will then be seeking their company as much as possible. Do they desire uh, the things that develop spiritual mindedness and spirituality in, in the soul? They will be diligent in their attendance upon the means of grace. That will I seek after. Now you can't do that if the desire is not of the Lord. One thing have I desired, and the Lord has to give me it. I've desired the Lord to give me something, but I just don't sit back. Here's where the danger is with many who should take this scripture and lay it seriously to heart. You'll find people who say, Oh, preacher, I desire to be saved, but I can't save myself. I desire a saving work of grace in my soul, but you know I'm a Calvinist. And so I don't believe that I can do anything to save myself. God has to do it. So I just have to sit here and wait with my desire and the hope that I just might be among the elect and I just might be ordained to eternal life. 
And I'll have to wait and see if God will do something to save my soul. Well, look at the psalmist theology. One thing have I desired. You ask the psalmist, well, what do you desire? And if he says, well, I desire the salvation of my soul. Oh, that's a big desire. And you're desiring that of the Lord. That's the right way to desire. You're very confident that God can give you the desire. Yes. One thing have I desired of the Lord. It's only he can do it. It's only he can fulfill it. Totally dependent upon him. But does the psalmist say, well, one thing have I desired of the Lord, therefore I'm just going to sit and patiently wait? No. That will I seek after. That will I seek after. Don't come and tell me that you desire the salvation of your soul if you're not seeking after it. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And the psalmist, he's got his theology balanced, hasn't he? One thing have I desired of the Lord. I want the Lord to do something that I can't do. I want him to give me the desire to fulfill the desire that he must have put into my soul. But I have a responsibility and I will seek after it. I will seek until God gives me it. Dear young people, don't let anyone deceive you into thinking that you have no part to play whatever in the salvation of your soul. God alone can save. God alone can regenerate. God alone can change the human heart and remove human corruption. God alone, by grace, Alone are you saved through faith. But we've got to seek. And dear young people, seek. Seek as you've never sought before. Seek with all your heart. Put everything into it. Seek. What does seek mean? Well, we get an idea when we listen to the Savior. The parables of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost son. What about the lost coin? The woman seeks it and she sweeps the house until she finds it. What about the lost sheep? The shepherd goes to seek it and he seeks until he finds. And if you're earnest in the Pursuit of the salvation of your soul. You will not rest. You will refuse to rest until you rest on Christ. That will I seek after. Now the apostle 
is speaking of a desire that was obviously wrought in him and put into his heart by the Spirit of God. I desire Christ. I desire him. There was a time when there was no beauty. I didn't desire him. I was just like all the rest of the multitude. I was full of religion. I was packed full of religion. But when I heard Stephen talk about Jesus, when I heard the followers of Christ speak so appreciatively of him, I had no desire for him. There was no beauty in him that I should desire him. He was despised, and he was rejected of me. But now I desire him. It's a new desire. And because I desire him, I seek him. And because I desire to be with him, I live that life with expectation that I shall be with him, and I shall see him. It's very interesting when you go back to Genesis. And you have the serpent coming to tempt Eve. And what does Eve do? Well, she follows her desire. And that's what caused her to sin. In uh, Genesis chapter 3, we read of the serpent in conversation with Eve Yea, God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. There you see the serpent. He's working upon the emotions and the understanding and the reasoning faculties of Eve. He's building her desires up. He is developing desires. He's telling her all these things that apparently God has kept from her view. How the devil can do that. And he can build up desires, he can work upon the understanding and upon the will, and he can gradually build up desires that are dangerous. Young people always be aware of that. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired. It didn't matter that God said, you shall not eat of it. It was forbidden. Somehow, the devil has shown her a scene That is desired. He has so described things. He is so wrought in her mind that the very thing that's forbidden 
Now it seems desirable. How many young people have fallen into that very snare? This is, you see, why desire is something of vital importance. If it's the wrong desire, it is extremely dangerous. If it is the right desire, we should pursue it with all our being. And what does Paul say? I have a desire, and I'm pursuing it. And it's the desire to be with Christ, which is far better. Something I value. Something I put high value upon. And I am pursuing it. You remember back uh, or over in the epistle to the Hebrews. We have those. And they had a desire. They were living in this world, the patriarchs. Abraham's included among them. And we read in verse 10 of Hebrews 11, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You remember when you go back to the book of Genesis, and when the time comes that, uh, that Abraham and Lot have to part company. They're just becoming too great numerically, and their herds are uh, growing, and they have to separate because the herdsmen are in contention. And so Abraham gives Lot the opportunity. The land's before you, Lot. You choose what direction you want to go, and I'll go in the other direction. And what did Lot do? He saw the well-watered plain. That's a place for me. I see future prosperity. I see material gain. I see a nice setting. A nice place to settle down. Leave the mountains and the hills behind. A nice place to settle with my family, to rear my children, and have a nice and comfortable future for them. And he set up home near those dangerous cities. And his children began to learn the ways of those cities. And they began to understand the lifestyle. And the desires developed. So much so that angels had to come and drag that family out of those cities before they'd be destroyed. You see, if the desire is real, that's what we'll pursue. And Lot could see what he desired. His eyes led him to desire what was dangerous. But on the other hand, there's Abraham, and he doesn't mind. Wherever God is, he's happy to be. Wherever he can build an altar to the Lord. Wherever he can worship God, he's happy to be there. Why? Because he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then we read that others who followed in his tree in verse 13, 
These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly, note those words, declare plainly. There's no mistaking it. It's very obvious that they seek a country. Because Paul had this new desire, was a real desire. He's able to write to the Philippians. He doesn't expect them to respond and say, well, we don't see any evidence, Paul, of that desire. Seems strange to us that you would tell us you've got a desire like that. We don't see any evidence that you desire what you tell us you desire. Well, here in Hebrews 11, we read of those, and their lifestyle spoke plainly, unmistakably. It was obvious to those looking on, those who watched them, those who observed them, they could see, well, these people are not living for time. These people are living for something better. They are looking beyond this world. They have the same desire that Paul had, that which is far better. And you know, whenever you read of a few generations back, some of you here perhaps, your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers, they may have struggled because... This is a time of great prosperity, people lament and people complain. But in contrast to generations past, how well off we are. And they, because of the conditions in which they lived, they often desired far stronger than we do in this generation. They desired the better country. They desired the hope of heaven and they desired the same desire that the apostle had to be with Christ, which is far better. How many old folks do you meet today? How many do you meet? And it's unquestionably clear that dear old soul has a desire to be with Christ, which is far better. We don't see much of that in these days. We did more in the past. But here's uh, what these godly souls, their lifestyle was saying plainly. Everybody could recognize it. They're not just living for this world. They're living in it. But they're looking beyond it. And they have a desire for that which is better. There's something better to them. It is not better for all. It certainly will not be better for the Christ rejecter. There's nothing better about a lost eternity. There's nothing better about hell and eternal darkness 
an eternal abandonment by God. There's nothing, there's nothing more, nothing far better about that. It is far, far, far inexplicably far worse. But here are these, like Paul. They have a desire. It's a real desire because it's a spiritual desire. It's not an earthly desire. It's not a a material desire. It's not a natural desire. The natural desire is the desire of the one of whom Jesus tells us, Luke records it, the rich farmer has fields brought forth plentifully, and he thought to himself, well now what should I do? He certainly didn't say to himself, well, I can now be very charitable. I've got so much. I can help the poor. I can assist those that are less well off. He didn't think for a moment like that. He didn't think to himself, well, God has blessed me so abundantly. I then am going to be a blessing to others. I'm going to share God's blessing with those who have needs and wants. Not at all. What did he say? I will build bigger barns. And I will have a conversation with my soul. And what did he say? Soul, what an ignorant man. What a poor, blind, ignorant man. What did he say to his soul? Soul, thou hast much goods led up for many years. Soul. He's addressing the spiritual part of his being. He thought within himself. What shall I do? He gave it a lot of thought. What shall I do? Didn't seem to occur to him. I'm so blessed. I'm going to help others. I'm going to share God's bounty with others. He never thought of that. And then he said, when he thought about it, he thought through, this will I do. Because I'm self-centered. Because I'm greedy. Because I'm selfish. This is what I will do. I will pull down my barns. I will pull them down. And I will build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. I'm keeping everything. I'm holding on to everything. No one's getting anything of mine. You ever met anyone like that? This is the kind of character he is. And I will say to my soul, imagine, soul, thou hast much goods led up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Imagine Talking to your soul like that. I tell you, when God leaves men and women and young people to themselves, 
they become totally spiritually irrational. And they talk absolute nonsense. And he's talking to his soul as though it's material, as though it needs to feed upon material things. And it can only exist, and it can only prosper through material things. But God said, Thy fool, and what a fool he was. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and it won't need anything. Who shall these things be? But listen, Jesus hasn't finished yet. He goes on after he speaks this parable, and he says, so is he. Do you want to know who the fool is? Do you want to know who God describes as a fool? Do you know who God calls a fool? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is he layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He's a fool. Now then, going back to the apostle's desire, it is a spiritual desire. It is put there by God into his soul. It is a desire that will be fulfilled, but It is a subservient desire. It's a godly, holy, spiritual, heavenly desire. A desire that any child of God would really want. But it is a subservient desire. And this is something, a lesson to every one of us. What what do we read? Nevertheless. I have a desire. And I didn't always have that desire. God put that desire into my soul. But, nevertheless, a Lord is there. A Lord is real. A Lord is the work of God, the miraculous work of God. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. You see the apostles thinking, I desire to be with Christ. I long to be with Christ. Nevertheless, there's a pressing need. And it is a need among the people of God. It is a pressing need that I can contribute to meeting. And therefore my desires, however spiritual, however heavenly, however however godly they may be, however much I may long for the satisfaction and the peace and the joy of my soul to be with Christ, that desire is subservient to the pressing needs of the people of God. Nevertheless, 
to abide with you. I'd love to be with Christ. I would love to be in heaven. I would love to be home in glory. And that's my earnest desire. But there is a pressing need to which I must turn and I must then wait for God's time. The time that would come that he speaks to Timothy about. The time of my departure is now at hand. I've done everything I can. That's how the people of God ought to think. They ought to put their desires, as it were, behind them when it comes to the pressing needs of Christ's cause. And that's something that we have to learn to do self-sacrificially. My desire is not a sinful desire. It may be in itself a good desire. It may be a desire that's profitable. If I fulfill it, if I seek after it. And how many there are, and yes, they'll... They'll say, well, there's nothing wrong with this and there's nothing wrong with that and I can do this and I can do that. It's for the good of my health. It's for the good of my family. It's this, that, and the other. But then we have to come to this. My desire and the pressing need that I can meet by God's grace and with God's help. So I have to set my desire aside for the glory of God and for the good of his cause. That's how Paul thought. Oh, I would just love to be with Christ. But then I look at his people and I see their needs and I will wait because the cause of Christ is of such importance. And the people of God are so precious. That's how Paul is thinking. Then, lastly, it is his present desire. He doesn't say, I've had a desire, or I would like this desire. It's present. It's still with him. Haven't you learned, every one of you, Through life's journey, the desires sometimes become very strong, and then they begin to feed, and they become faint. I used to desire, but I've changed my desires. I've discovered there's more important things to desire. I've discovered in life things I didn't know before. I developed in my thought, and now I desire things that I never used to desire because I've learned to value things differently. Uh, The apostle says, I have a desire. It's a permanent desire. It's an abiding desire. It's a desire to be with Christ. But because it's a present desire, it indicates to us that he had no desire to be anywhere where Christ wouldn't be. 
And that's something we should all inquire about. Can I go here? Would Christ go with me? Can I involve myself in this? Would Christ be at my side? Can I keep this company? Would Christ accompany me into it? When Paul speaks of this, I have a desire to be with Christ. His company is precious to me. His company is desirable to me. And therefore, I cannot be where he will not be. I cannot go where he will not go. And when you see the slackness and the carelessness and the attitudes today of many professing the name of Christ, you wonder, you really wonder, how can they be there? How can they do that? How can they go there? How can they be happy in that company? Do they desire Christ? If we desire him, we will want to be with him, and we will want his company. And the apostle, as we said, there comes a time when because the desire is of the Lord, he's pursuing it. (coughs) The day comes when, as we've already noted, he's able to say to Timothy, I am now ready, and the time, the time has come. I've waited for it, I've desired it, I've sought it, and now it has come. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I've finished my course, I have kept the faith. The time of my departure from this world is at hand and I've been preparing for it and I'm ready to go to that which is far better. And here this evening, are we ready? If we knew tonight the time of our departure was at hand, would we be frightened? Would we be anxious? Would we be afraid of the presence of God? The fact is, we know not what a day or an hour will bring forth. None of us know. There are people, and the the time of their departure is appointed, and when it comes, they depart in a way they never, never planned for or expected. I was reading, it's an old book, Teals and sketches of the Covenanters, records of some of the experiences of the Covenanters in the southern part of Scotland back in the 17th century. And there was an old Covenanter, well, she wasn't really old, but she was Elspeth Wallace was her name. She'd been married for one year and 15 days. And her husband, who was a gardener in one of the big estates, 
They were felling a tree and it fell on him and he was killed instantly. And not long after he was killed, a little girl was born, Jessie. She was called Jessie, Jessie Wallace. Anyway, at those, in those days, the uh, killing times, as they were called, the local Lord Early, he was responsible for hunting down the Covenanters in the particular area of Ayrshire. You can go down there. I passed through the district on many occasions. In fact, the Scottish Reformation Society and some of the people who are interested still attend the graves and the memorials that mark uh, the places where the, uh, some of the Covenanters died and where they were buried and so on. But anyway, when the Jesse became, when she came to 15 years of age, she then went to work as a maid in one of the biggest state houses not far away. And she was able to come every Saturday, was her day off, so she would come to visit her mother, and they would eat together, and then they would chat for a little while, and then she would have to go and leave her mother and go back to her work. And in this evening, February uh, 1678, it was a frosty night, and all of a sudden, as uh, they were chatting together and they were discussing Jessie's future marriage, she had a proposal for marriage, and her mother had just lit lit up her little pipe after her uh, meal, and in case you don't know, that was a habit. The old Scottish and Irish woman always smoked a little clay pipe after their meals, and often through the day I used to gather up these little pipes when I was a little fellow at times. But as they were sitting chatting, suddenly the door of the little cottage burst in and two wild brothers came through the door. And they belonged to the clan Campbell, Donald and his brother Archie. They came in and they'd been sent by the uh, Lord early to take to himself Jessie. He had seen her. She was a beautiful young woman and he was of a mind. He would capture her. He would abuse her and use her and he would destroy her life. Those days were wicked days and men with power felt they could do as they like. And he had gotten Donald and Archie to go to capture her and bring her to him. And their reward was to be the only thing that was of any value to her mother. It was her cow, the cow called uh, Dodie. The only possessions the lady had was a cow and a cat and a little patch of ground that she grew 
vegetables and so on on. And the cow, she was heard when she'd go out with the cow, she would talk to it as if it was human. And the cow seemed to respond. And it was her prized treasure, her cow. When they broke in, they told what their mission was. We're here, we're taking your daughter back to Lord Early. And we're taking your cow, he told us. This was our reward. This was our payment, the cow. Off they went. But they weren't making very much progress. They untied the cow and then they, they tied Elspeth up where the cow had been and off they went with the cow and her daughter, Jessie. They weren't making much progress, but the cow was stubborn and refused to go and they pulled and they hauled. And Archie, he struggled with Jessie. He had to drag her and sometimes half carry her. And they weren't making very much progress, so they decided to stop and figure out what was to be done. And they decided this. We're going to have our payment. So we'll have to kill the cow. But then they thought about how we're going to kill it. We'll kill the cow, and then we can cut it up, come back, and take it off as we need it, and so on. So they figured out a way that they thought would be successful in the killing of the cow, Dodi. And so they took a large stone out of the stream at the side. They tied up the ankles of Jesse, and they set her in a rock, and they said that she dare not try to escape. And so they decided that they would kill the cow, and they figured out the way to do it. They took a, a, a stone out of the river and they bound it up in what the Highlanders wore. It was usually tartan. It was a cloak out over their shoulders. And they put the stone into the corner and they wrapped it up. And then Donald was to hold the cow by its horns while Archie swung this round to hit the cow in the head with the stone. But the cow kept struggling and shaking and Donald was struggling to try and hold it steady and so Archie kept missing it. And he got so angry that he backed up and he took a real mighty swing. And as he did, the stone left the cloth and went into the air and came down. And instead of hitting the cow's head, it hit his brother Donald in the head and he fell to the ground, killed instantly. Archie then fell down, lifted his brother. They were very close. And he was in a state holding the bloodied head of his brother. He never intended to kill him. They never thought for one moment that it was even a possibility that it would happen. 
He was departing instantly from this world in a way he never expected. Jessie, of course, was able to untie her ankles. And off she went, the cow willingly, back home. And the last she saw was Archie collapsing. He fainted in unbelief of what had happened and collapsed onto the body of his brother. But you see how he departed from this world in a way that no one would have even imagined. You see, people leave this world in ways that no one expects. And when no one expects it, Paul was ready. The time of my departure, I've waited for it. And now it's going to be fulfilled. I'm leaving time, I'm leaving this world, and I'm going to be with Christ, which is far better. If the time of our departure was now, are we ready, you young people? If the time of your departure, in the most unexpected way perhaps, would you be ready? Are you ready? Would it be to leave this world for that which is far better? Or would it be to leave this world to that which is unspeakably far, far worse? We're all on our way to eternity. Are we ready? Do we have the right desire in light of eternity? May God bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we thank thee for the miraculous power of God that can change desires in the human heart, that can put desires there that never previously existed, heavenly, holy, spiritual desires. Oh, put the right desires, we pray, into each of our hearts. Remember the young again. Bless them, we pray, with spiritual desires. And may every one of us, when we have the right desires, when they are good desires, may they ever be subservient to the needs around us and the needs of thy cause. Bless thy truth to us. Pardon us and accept us for Christ's sake. Amen.